It can keep a person alive through the worst of situations. All of us need it. It's a reason, it's a theme, as I said, introducing this service that I keep returning to. The idea of hope. Maybe there's a situation that we hope to pull through. Maybe it's a relationship that we hope will grow. Maybe it's hope that the teacher is going to forget that it's test day. Age, background, life situation, it makes no difference. It's often paired, this idea of desiring hope for something specific is often paired with something we have so little of. We so much want hope, we have so little of patience. You ever have that quandary in your life? That you're hoping for something, whatever it might be, and you want it now. I get that so much. There's a reason that uh, experts say the ability to delay gratification is a better determiner for kids and their chances for success than their scores on a standardized test or their grades. In some situations, though, it seems like nothing short of a miracle now is going to answer the need for hope. In today's story, we have two people who have hope that's on a clock and time has almost run out. Either in time has been entirely exhausted or the clock is ticking and there's seconds left before it's too late for hope. They've heard that hope has a name. They just hope that name is Jesus. Let's check out the story. There's a, an interweaving in this story between these two episodes. I'm going to read from Mark's version of the story today. Check it out. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue, named Jairus, came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians and spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Well, I won't lie, that is a tricky difficult story to read, especially as a dad hearing what it is that Jairus is probably going through and the, the desperation that he felt and probably the hopelessness and despair that he felt when the servants came from his house and said, time's up, it's over, she's dead. And we can't say we know a whole lot about 
Jairus. And for all his word economy that Mark is known for, Mark actually gives us the best picture of who he is. This is a story that's actually across three of the Gospels, and I just happen to choose Mark's version for that very for that very idea of the picture that he gives of who Jairus is. We know he's got one daughter, this one who has been ill and has now passed away. He's a person of means. He's got money. But probably one of the most prominent facts about him really becomes one of the most important. He's the leader of the synagogue. He's the man in every sense of the word. The kind who would have all the means and desire, probably, to keep Jesus on retainer whenever he needs a miracle or a healing or just a little bit of extra pocket change. For all the different reasons that uh, people might want to have Jesus always close by. Jesus crosses into Jairus' town, and Jairus, this, this man, this dad, is desperate. And maybe for a second he thinks, what will my colleagues at the synagogue think of me at the next Sabbath feast, going to Jesus? You know, he's interacting with Pharisees who uh, Jesus was never on good terms with those guys. And maybe he, he has that question in his head, that moment of pause, if you will, but it only happens, I'm guessing, for a split second because he throws it out, throws out that idea with these five words. This is my little girl. And if you are a dad or a mom or a grandpa or a grandma, you know those five words can trump just about anything that would hold us back, that would give us a moment of pause, that would make us want to have, make us care about our dignity when our little girl's life is on the line. Because, you know, I know some even keel people, moms and dads, both, who would do anything if it came to needing to do something to save their child's life. And right now, Jairus is that guy. Jairus is that dad. And he throws all his pride and all his decorum of being a leader of the synagogue right out the window in verses 22 and 23. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come, lay your hands upon her so she may be made well and live. Falls and begs him repeatedly. I mean, imagine the idea of a muscle-bound pro wrestler, the toughest guy in the, that you could possibly imagine in your head, and he's sobbing like a baby. That's most likely the 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 scene that Jairus is creating. This man of dignity, this man of, of prestige on his feet or on his face begging Jesus for his daughter's life. And Jesus sees something in it. And he says, okay, Jairus, let's go. Who touched me? Who t- Somebody touched me. I know it. No, Pete, was it you? No, look, man, I'm not going to be mad. I just, I felt power leave from me. I need to know who it was. Who touched me? I know we're in a crowd here. Dude, I get it. I just, I need to know. Tell me. Come on. You got to know. Mysteries, mysteries, mysteries. You know, Jesus is one certainly for asking profound questions. We see that constantly throughout his ministry. But this is one of those that makes you scratch your head a little bit. Like, really? 
who touched you in the middle of a crowd? As we've experienced in the last few weeks, Jesus has been attracting crowds everywhere. Since he gave his Sermon on the Mount uh, back in Matthew 5 through 7, early on in that part of his of his ministry, um, he's been going viral in in the first century, um, getting all kinds of crowds, all kinds of followers around him. And as he is experiencing the scene, if you will, his disciples are kind of probably scratching their heads like, Jesus, if you hadn't noticed, we're in the middle of a mob right now. There's a lot of people touching you. Why are you all of a sudden asking who touched me? But this one's different. See, Jesus' question isn't entirely out of left field. Because normally, and Jesus has been having a couple people come to him asking for healings or asking for miracles, even resurrections, as we've been looking at the last few weeks. Normally, when somebody asks Jesus for a healing, he's gone. But this one's unique, where the healing actually happens before the request. The woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment and the power goes and heals her before Jesus even knows who it is. And what's more, there's a mob looking on. And including this woman who hears Jesus' question, who touched me? And she, I'm guessing she goes from, if I just touch him, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed, to, uh-oh. Because she's a woman. Unclean for the disease that she's dealing with. And an outcast in every way in that society. You have a leader of the worship service, Jairus. And you have a woman who, was never, who for 12 years hasn't even been allowed in a worship service at all. Side by side, on either side of Jesus. And if you think public speaking is scary, try it under her circumstances. Especially when Jesus has already been called out and, and invited to help this hero of the, of the town. This, the man of the town. But he asks her. He asks, who touched me? And asks her essentially to give a testimony. To say, you know what, I was sick for 12 years. I was diseased for 12 years. No doctor could heal her. But Jesus could. No doctor in all their medicinal knowledge of the first century could fix whatever it was that she was going through, but the power of the Son of God could do it. And with the crowd around, he asked this woman who never would have had a voice playing by the rules to say, to give a story. This is a man who healed me when nobody else could. And Jesus meets that fear with compassion. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. When the woman was desperate, all but hopeless, she found healing. She found hope. And his name was Jesus. 911, what's your emergency? Help! My husband's having a heart attack! Oh, you know what? Hang on one second. I just, I ran out of coffee. Um, let me go get a reload and I will be right back and I'll help you out, okay? Please hold. A few years ago, I presented that idea to our church, that scene. And we actually have a few people who worked 911 uh, for many years. Uh, 
in the congregation. And I asked this question, what would their boss of the 911 operator boss say if that's how a situation played out? I'm certainly guessing bad things that I could not say as a pastor were probably going to be taking place. You know why? Because it's not supposed to happen like that. When it comes, especially when it comes to anything where you're calling 911, especially when you're calling about a heart attack, you don't have days and weeks to deal with it. You have minutes and seconds. This woman has been dealing with a bleed for 12 years. She can wait a little bit longer. When the little girl's life is on the line, when it's coming down to the seconds, you don't ask stupid questions in a mob. Jesus, who touched me? Jesus put Mr. Everything, or worse, put a dad with his daughter's life on the line, on hold for this outcast woman. Jesus, what was he thinking? And then... The seconds run out. Jairus, the servants say, your girl is gone. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Why? Why did he stop? Why didn't he just heal her and run? Why didn't he just let the touch and the hem of the cloak thing work out and he goes and, and does what Jairus asked him to do? What he agreed to do for Jairus. It's just a a handful of the millions of questions that as a dad I would be asking Jesus, probably through gritted teeth, probably through um, more tears than I'd ever want to put on camera. I think, and this is just me taking the best guess I can, trying to put myself into what Jesus was going for. I think it was so that Jairus could see the healing come full circle for this woman. To hear those words that he said to her, hoping Jairus, with his ears hopefully open, would hear, your faith has made you well. To know, to have Jairus know, overhearing the scene and, and overseeing the situation, to know that the woman's miracle wasn't prompted because she touched the cloak. As though the hem of his garment actually was what had the healing powers, but it was her faith that brought on the healing. And he tells Jairus, having do just done the whole picture there with the woman who had been bleeding, he tells Jairus after that son, he says, don't fear, only believe. Or put another way, to use the language that he used with the woman, do not fear, have faith. So my friends, hope has a name. As the woman found out, as Jairus will find out as the story goes on, hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And while his display of power may not always lead to physical resurrection, as we imagine, as it ultimately happens with Jairus' daughter, when he does go to her, her house, and he says, he clears out the, the servants and the professional whalers and the whole crowd that is gathered to um, make a spectacle of this woman's passing. He says, she is not dead. She is only asleep. And he tells her, honey, it's time to wake up. And she obeys. And she's there again. While 
his display of power may not always lead to physical resurrection like that. When we are praying for praying for hope with a loved one, the hope of the resurrection remains that. A hope. A hope that keeps us facing forward, envisioning an unknown future guarded by a well-known God. That's why Paul can offer a litany of hope in Romans 8, uh, verses 38 and 39. One of the most encouraging chapters out there. When he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a hope that Jesus' power will eventually produce a time when death will be no more, and mourning will be no more, and crying will be no more, and pain will be no more. One writer said, and and I'm going to tweak the language to to fit our New York crowd here at least. He said, what if we're riding down I-90 and we travelers forgot our purpose? What if we all forsook our destination, our commitment to where it was that we were going, and we came to believe that this throughway was all that there is? It'd be a disaster. The future orientation of Christian time reminds us that we are a people on the way. And wherever we find ourselves stuck, be it in traffic, be it in a job, or even being stuck in the idea of grief, that remembering of God's tight and loving hold on our futures might just be the difference between hope and despair. This week, or this season, God forbid you are facing something that feels hopeless, hang on to this truth. This is not the end of the story. I get it. It That is something that requires patience to find peace in that truth. I get that, like Jairus, experiencing wanting hope and having patience often don't go together because we want it we want it now on our timetable. But knowing the end result of his story, that he got to hug his living again, breathing again daughter, may you experience the power and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for that love and that power displayed in resurrection power. Though though it may be something that we await for in the future, God, we hang on to that hope that there will be a day where there is no more mourning or crying or pain or suffering or sin or deceit or all those things that make us want to escape the, the trappings of this world. But until that day comes, while we sit in the not yet, help us to hang on to you and the hope that you give through your son, Jesus. All this we pray in your name. Amen.